Hi, this is Gillian from Race Reflections. Welcome to this episode of At Work, our fortnightly space on all things inequality, injustice and oppression in the workplace. As always, I would like to invite you to send us your queries, your questions, your dilemmas. If you would like us to dedicate some thinking, some musing, some reflecting on particular situation that you might be struggling with. So get in touch using contact at restreflections.co.uk or at work at restreflections.co.uk. And so I am back. I have been away and I have left you in the capable hands of peers and colleagues who have been guests here on At Work. And so that means that I haven't produced a podcast in a few weeks now and it's good to be back. And so for today, I thought that pick maybe a little bit about social media and very specifically Twitter. And so some of the challenges, some of the opportunities in the main that it has brought for me and that it has brought from rest reflections. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do that. So let's think about social media. So I want to start by saying that the main platform that I use is Twitter. Some of you, I hope, know that. I'm not really active on Instagram and my page is private anyway because it is for family and close friends. So please don't attempt to follow me on Instagram because I shall not allow you to. It is a private space. I'm no longer on Facebook as an individual I was there for maybe a year or so. That was a while ago. That was, I think, over a decade ago. Um, I didn't really like Facebook. The one positive thing that I noted was that it allowed me to connect to old friends and then long lost family members. And so that was great for that purpose. But it didn't really, I guess, serve other functions. Certainly, I've never used Facebook as an individual for professional purposes. And so that leads us to the main platform that I use, which, as I said, was Twitter. So what I would like to do is to tell you a little bit of background about how I've come to use Twitter, some of the advantage, some of the opportunities, some of the gift even, we might say, that Twitter has brought for me as an individual, but also to rest reflection as an organization. And then I guess tell you where I stand in terms of some of the controversies that exist and some of the criticism that exists when it comes to Twitter in particular, perhaps uh, social media more broadly. How did I come to use Twitter? There was two main reasons that I guess drove me to Twitter. Number one, I felt quite isolated in spaces where I was consistently the only black woman, or if not the only black woman and person at large, the only black person with an interest in what I am interested in. So the only person who is perhaps more radical-minded, more critical, interested 
in, let's say, marginalised scholarship and more radical thinking. Now, I've not met people with the kind of ideas that I have within the spaces that I have inhabited. And so that is not to say that, you know, I am unique in some ways. It is just a reflection of the reality that when it comes to a particular level within academia, within professional arenas, there's just not many black people, I'm afraid. And so that is not to say that you only need to be black. You know, I think most marginalized scholars would be more inclined to more critical and radical ideas. But it does mean that you are much more likely to find yourself in the position of being the only one. And we've spoken about that and we've thought about some of the challenges associated with being the only one or being so-called, quote-unquote, underrepresented. I'm not going to get into that today, but suffice to say that it was one of the reasons that drove me to social media and in particular to Twitter. And so we could really summarise that as a attempt to seek community, to connect to other like-minded people. That was reason number one. Reason number two was, and I would like to take you back before I address that, that there is an association between race reflection and social media. And the reason why that association is there is because essentially my Twitter handle was created, and I'm talking about my personal handle here, Kegelain, was created pretty much within a few weeks of race reflections being created. And that is very important. That is quite critical to the point that I want to make next. And that point is that I started to engage with Twitter primarily. That was the biggest reason. Primarily to share my work. As I started writing, I started sharing. So for me, engagement with serious writing, consistent writing, regular writing has come with public scholarship and public scholarship on Twitter. So sharing my work, sharing my ideas, sharing my conceptualization, sharing my lived experience, sharing my theorization on social media, on Twitter. And so you can see that for race reflections and for me, there has been this inherent seeking community, building community accountability in the way that I was dealing with ideas, right? So I started writing, I think, less than a decade ago, I think about eight, nine years ago. And when I said I started writing, of course, I've been writing for longer than that. But when I said I started writing, this is when I started to really consider myself as a writer. This is when I was writing something like one article, sometimes a week, which when I think about it, it's, it's quite a significant achievement. And if you are familiar with the work and, and my writing on race reflection, you will know that my writing is not a 300, 400, 500 word post. The article that I write and the article that we publish, which are my articles, 
acquired sustained scholarship, right? So we're talking about articles on average that are 2,500, 3,500 words that requires some knowledge, that requires some research, often that requires some theorization. And so just to give you an idea of the work that has been involved in writing consistently for that number of years, is that when I started writing, it would take me up to three days, really, to write an article. It would take me that long. That's just to give you a sense of the amount of work that has gone into Race Reflections Archive. As an aside, we now have, I think, between 115 and 120 articles and one continues to be published every month. Now, started by three days, two and a half, three days or so to write an article right now, because I've been doing this for eight years or so, it takes me about a day, say five to seven and a half, eight hours or so to write my monthly article. So let's call it a day on average to write an article. So if you think about that commitment over eight years, particularly at the time when I was writing one article a week, sometimes one article a fortnight, but even if you were to call it one article a month, it's a significant investment in writing, in thinking, in reading. And I think that has been quite significant in terms of improving my writing, my communication style, my confidence as a scholar and as a thinker. The more you engage in anything, the better at it you become, inevitably. But also related to that is your confidence grows as a result. So writing fundamentally for me and for rest reflection link to the idea of community. So to summarize, the two main reasons why I engaged with social media. Number one was to kind of disrupt that sense of being the only one and that sense of isolation, perhaps at times marginalization, by linking to other like-minded, radical, critical uh, thinkers, including Black theorists, Black scholars. So that was number one. And number two, related to number one, it was to share my work. And so as part of sharing my work, that has meant creating a sense of community, community accountability, community feedback, community engagement in the work of race reflection. I think that is massive. I think that is massive. As I said, there would not be race reflection but for social media because race reflection and my use of social media came together. Right, so they have grown together. And that's really, really important. Now, let me address some of the criticism, some of the concerns that exist around the use of social media, particularly for people who are like me, uh, mental health professionals, you know, psychotherapists, psychologists, and, you know, scholars at large. Now, I want to say that not every mental health professional is a scholar, of course, and say most are not. But nonetheless, if you, like me, you sit with one foot in different so-called discipline, it means that, you know, part of my work is also looking after the well-being and the mental health of others. And I do that in various ways, including, I would I 
argue through my community work and engagement on social media. So some of the concerns are, well, there's something that is still a little bit elitist around the work that we do. Sharing idea, sharing knowledge, sharing scholarship is not really something that was done certainly before I stepped on the scene. There were not many people in the UK addressing the kind of issue that I address around intersection between oppression, mental health and well-being. There wasn't many people. Now there's lots of people who do that in, in the UK, but certainly when I started, there wasn't a lot, not even a lot of people writing about this stuff and making this stuff open access accessible, which is what I was doing and what I've been doing for the bulk of my writing life. And so with that kind of unfamiliarity came concerns, I would say fantasy around boundaries, fantasies around the dumping down of ideas, fantasies around engaging with potential patients. And so that takes me back to someone who I think was a psychiatrist at the time. And I read on his profile that he would not engage or follow people who could be patient. And I just thought, what an odd way to think about the world. How can you tell? How can you tell who is a patient, who has the potential to be a patient? Might you not be a patient? You might be a patient yourself. So this kind of separation that exists between, you know, so-called service users and mental health professionals is quite illusory, largely. But it was an interesting thing. But I think some of the fantasy that existed and some of the discomfort that existed, particularly within the mental health field, was to do with that distinction. What does it mean to be in a space that is so open where power, to some degree, to a large extent, I would say, is kind of reconfigurated. What does it mean to engage differently? What does it mean to be held to account? What does it mean to be challenged by people that we consider other, that we consider inferior, that we consider them, certainly not part of us? So I think there was some of that. There was also another more, I would say, more sinister set of expectation where people go and think either directly or indirectly, oh, this person used social media because there must be something going wrong in their life. Or maybe they have no friends. Or maybe they are not capable of maintaining friendship. Or maybe they are attention seeker. Or, 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 or maybe there is other form of, you know, pathology going on in their life or in their psychological makeup that make people drawn to social media. Now, I laugh at this really because that comes from a place of being so disconnected from the lived experience of what it is like to navigate particular institution as the only black person, as the only marginalized thinker, or as the only one engaged in particular kinds of ideas. And I'm talking here about, you know, radical critical, disruptive thinking. And I think, how do you expect people to exist if they cannot exist in communities? And around them, there is no community that exists. If you are a, I'd say, more traditional practitioner and everyone around you thinks like you, you are going to experience very little problem creating community, growing, nurturing your thinking, nurturing your ideas, because they're everywhere. Now, for people like us, actually, it takes a lot more purposive and deliberate action to create community, because sometimes there's just one of us within a whole institution. And so I think people who engage in this kind of logics 
really need to check themselves and to reflect on what it says about their worldview and what it says about how they expect people to be. And so the kind of norms, the kinds of expectations that they take for granted about people's experience of the world. Now, by and large, you're going to have the same kind of, I would say, character, personality, a temperament spread out between users of social media that you're going to have outside of that. But this line of criticism always kind of intrigued me and also concerned me, particularly when it comes to people who think that they are all about equalities and they are all about fairness and justice. And so that takes me to the final point that I want to raise, which is really about how social media as democratized knowledge for so many of us, for so many of us. Again, particularly knowledge that is marginalized, knowledge that is treated with contempt, knowledge that finds it difficult to get published within mainstream publication or peer-reviewed publication, knowledge that is simply erased, silenced and set aside. But for Twitter, I would not have been able to engage with some of the ideas, some of the writing, the reference, the book, and knowing what exists when it comes to particular authors, when it comes to particular scholars, not all of them formally published. And so I really want to make this point that maybe part of the contempt and maybe part of the criticism that social media and Twitter attract is to do with that, that it really forces knowledge-based institution to rethink what it means to do scholarship and to rethink what it means to be accessible and to rethink what the purpose or what the function of knowledge, what the purpose or the function of creating should be about. Now, I've been very clear that for me, if your knowledge, if your production creation activity exercises don't impact on the world and are not geared towards making the world a better place, for me, it's kind of masturbatory. I've said that very often. And so that's not me alone. There's a very strong tradition of so-called intellectual engagement within Black scholarship and the distinction between practice and thinking, between, you know, the community and the scholar is not as rigid as it is sometimes conceptualized within more traditional school of thought. So it's very important that we also remember that when it comes to equality, when it comes to justice, when it comes to liberation, that the use of social media, in particular the use of Twitter, has a fundamental place to play. And so that's not to say that there is not any difficulty with Twitter. There's, you know, it's a problem. We've, we've had studies, we have documented that black women in particular are more likely to be trolled and to be harassed. We have also some toxic power moves and dynamics that are in existence because wherever people, human beings come together, I'm afraid this stuff is going to be reproduced. And you also have a lot of people hiding themselves, lack of openness, transparency, some anonymity that makes engaging with honesty more difficult. So there's all these challenges. I'm not going to get into people feeling pressure to leave a particular kind of way and the sorts 
of maybe stress that are associated with appearances, with lifestyle and things of that nature, simply because I don't engage with social media, really looking at a people's lifestyle, even though I share quite openly because I think I am a whole entire person. And so, I, again, I don't think you can really separate the scholar from where they stand in the world and, and therefore their experiences. So I do give, I would say, quite generously about who I am, about my struggle as a black mother, about my struggle as a scholar, about, you know, some of my accomplishments, some of my triumph as well. And I think this is what makes people connect to you as a person. And I think sometimes people need to connect to you as a person before they're able to connect to your ideas. So that's that. I think I'm going to close it now. That wasn't really structured. I hope it is helpful. What I would say is that I have learned so much about myself, about the world and about others. I've connected to so many people. I've had so many opportunities, including opportunities to write, to do work, to feed race reflection as a structure because of my use of social media and Twitter, to grow as a thinker. By and large, race reflection as it stands right now as an entity wouldn't be here but for social media. By and large, myself as a thinker, as a writer, wouldn't exist as I exist right now but for social media. And so for that reason, I'm particularly grateful grateful to Twitter and particularly to Black Twitter. And so that's all I'm going to say. If you are in a space where there tends to be contempt towards social media use, particularly Twitter use, I'd invite you to rethink and invite you to think about some of the opportunities that come with using social media, particularly for those who are marginalised. for listening again this has been Gillen from Rest Reflections until next time please take care